Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Well, good morning. Welcome uh, to Redeemer again. My name is Jason Myers, and I have just the immense privilege of being here this morning uh, to kick off our new series uh, in Lent. And for some of us, this may be a new church season for us. Maybe we've never done Lent before. Maybe this is the first time. Uh, And during this season, we take a pause because we believe that we cannot fully appreciate the resurrection without first preparing for it. And Lent is an important season because it allows us to fully embrace the pain of the cross before the joy of the resurrection. So we take 40 days uh, of preparation. Uh, And you may have noticed this morning that the service feels and sounds and looks a little bit different. Um, We have a bit more of a somber tone. We don't say alleluia. We enter in silence. And our Sunday services reflect this season's emphasis on repentance. And so each week we pause to reflect and repent on why we need the resurrection because on our own we are dead. And so we invite you into this season with us. Uh, As I mentioned, this week we also begin a brand new series called To Dust You Shall Return. And we're going to be spending the next six weeks of Lent going through a series of passages from the lectionary that offer us time to reflect on just where we've gone wrong. And Lent provides us a set of practices to draw ourselves um, out of ourselves and back to God. And Lent reminds us that we are dust and to dust we shall return. And so I hope that this season is one of open examination of our hearts and lives and turning back to God. Let us pray. Dearly Father, God, we thank you so much for this season. God, we are reminded that we are weak and we are frail and on our own, God, there is no health in us. God, we pray that your strength would be our strength during the season and that the power of the resurrection would begin uh, in our own lives as we seek to repent and seek to return to you. We pray that you would empower us to do this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so today we're going to begin on the theme of confession. And confession is such an interesting and peculiar word. I don't know what the word conjures up for you. Uh, For most of us, maybe it's uh, literally a confessional booth, right? You think about the word confession, where does your brain go? This kind of dark, sterile process where a person you can maybe barely see hears you list off all the sins that you've done since your last confession, that maybe that's where your brain goes. It's not very personal and sometimes can seem kind of rote, like what's the point, right? Although I would remind us that we all have a form of a confessional booth. It may not have wood and a thing where we can't see a screen, but we have one of these. And I'd argue that today we all carry on a modern confessional booth. It's called our cell phone. Many of us use these as our modern day confessional booth. We put our deepest fears, our desires, and our mistakes out for all to see. And the internet kind of acts like our priest because we want the one, someone to hear our confession to give us consolation. And maybe that's the adoration of the people who are looking at this. But unlike the confession modeled in scripture, this is also kind of deeply impersonal. And I think at the end of the day, it doesn't give us that consolation that we crave. We put it out there, but we get nothing in return. Uh, Maybe that's not where your brain goes with confessions. I know my brain goes to uh, crime, crime and death, which is a weird connection. Have you ever seen the increase of podcasts and maybe on Netflix for a true crime series? 
Here's the odd thing. A lot of these programs uh, that are out now break down a crime. And the pinnacle of the series is seeking the confession of the perpetrator. We want someone to admit that they were wrong. Own up to it. Just say you did it. I think that's because we have this deep hunger for justice. We want to see those who do wrong admit to it, to own up and say, I was wrong. Here's the big difference, though. We love to see the confessions of other people. We like to avoid it if it's ours. We love other people's confessions. Ours, not so much. By and large, I think we tend to avoid confession, either because we think, one, it doesn't make much of a difference, so kind of what's, what's the big point? Or we might not think that we have anything to confess, right? I didn't murder anyone this week, gold star. Um, so what am I going to like say? But what if confession was more than those two alternatives? What if it was more than those two things? What if confession was the starting point for new life? Today, I hope to show that confession is not unimportant, and that's a gift given to us in this season of Lent. We have a resistance to confession because confession is often associated with wrongdoing. And there are no three harder words in the English language to say than I was wrong. What is it about those words that are so difficult to utter? It seems easier sometimes to find excuses, to give reasons, to provide a context for our actions. Our first move may be to blame others before ever admitting that we had a part to play in it too. Confession does not come naturally. But why are we afraid to confess? Perhaps it's because we're afraid that if the truth were exposed, there'd be too much shame or guilt to endure for anyone, for God. So we hide. I think we see this pattern play out through Scripture too, and we saw it in our first reading today, one of the first stories we meet in Scripture. And it's kind of the great rebellion in Genesis chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them up uh, to the book of Genesis. Small backstory real quick. God creates a good world and generously gives everything to his creation. We covered this a few weeks ago uh, in our generosity series. Uh, The humans don't respond well to the one command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which you may be wondering, what's the deal with that tree? Well, all throughout Genesis 1 and 2, God has been defining what is good. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, right? Animals good, fish good, land good, people good. You kind of get the pattern. And now the tree represents whether or not the humans will trust that definition of what's good and consequently what's evil, hence the name of the tree. Do you trust the definitions that God has kind of put on offer here? Um, Spoiler alert, the humans wrongly choose, right? Surprise, surprise. They eat of the one tree in the overflowing garden that they were told not to, thus rejecting God's definition and failing ultimately to trust him, to trust that God's goodness was on display and not his hiding. Okay, that's where our story picks up in Genesis chapter 3. I want to jump in at verse 8. It's on the screen. We find an absurd situation that we may relate pretty well to. It says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? 
So God is walking in the garden he created, and the two humans are trying to hide from God. This is the first version of hide-and-seek ever. The humans are very bad at hiding, and God is very good at the other part of that game, the finding, right? And so God finds them, and he asks them a question. I have the two questions on the screen. He asks, where are you, and what is, it, what is this you have done? Two questions there in Genesis chapter 2. Where are you, and what is this you have done? Notice right here in Genesis chapter 3, this is an opportunity for confession. This is God's offer to confess what's gone wrong. God's first question, where are you, is one word in Hebrew, and it's rhetorical. God isn't actually trying to find out new information with this question. It says, I have no clue where these two humans went in this big garden, and oh no, I lost them. That's not God's posture. He's rather trying to encourage introspection. Where are you, and what is this you have done? Why is it? That you're hiding. Why are you hiding from a God who has abundantly provided for all of your needs? It's a tone of tenderness. You might translate it this way God might be asking, How did you get here? How did you find yourself in this place of hiding and shame and fear? And notice what happens. Rather than Adam saying, I was wrong, he shifts blame. The problem is over there, it's what they did. Not what I did. Uh, We do the same. We blame others, right? If you only understood what they did, my actions would make sense. It's not just Adam and Eve. It's us too. We like to hide as well. And it's why we start off each service with this incredible prayer. We prayed it this morning. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known. And from you, no secrets are hid. Start off every service with this prayer. Here's the thing. God already knows what happened. Hiding is just a trick we tell ourselves and others, but God knows. There is no hiding from the God of the universe, but that actually might not be a bad thing. We tend to think of hiding as self-preservation. But hiding is not what we are meant to do. Notice something in the story, rather than run away, God comes looking. So the, the, the failure of the humans is not a chance for God to run away. It's a chance for God to draw near. And your brokenness is not a reason for God to run, but a reason for God to come near. And I think this changes everything. What is it that God already knows that he offers an invitation for confession? What is already known to him? What secret that is not actually hid? Does he invite us to confess? But let's pause here. What are we hiding and why are we hiding it? That might be a better question. What are we hiding and why are we hiding it? What are we afraid of? I think we hide for the same reason. We hide because of shame. We believe love is tied to hiding. We think our love, the degree that someone can love us, is tied to the degree that we can keep stuff from them, at least the hard parts of life. Someone will only love me to the extent that they don't see the rough parts. We've got to put away the ugly stuff because people will run if they see it. And why do we think this way? Well, if we're really critical, sometimes that's been our response to other people. And so we play out that story that we've played on others. The church and God included. And honestly, as a church, we've, we've failed here because we've bought into that story too. 
We've made, a church, we've made church a place for happy faces instead of broken hearts. And that's what makes this season of Lent so, so important. It's a season made for broken hearts. It's a season made for broken people. Where we can bring that brokenness out into the open, confess it, lament over it, and bring the brokenness to be healed before a God who loves us. And what if confession then is ultimately an expression of God's love towards us and for us? Because we believe that God so deeply loves us that we're able to bring out that brokenness into the light and confess it. We don't have to hide. God isn't going to run from you or from me or from any of us. He's going to run to you and ask the same question he asked in Genesis 3. How did you get here? Not because he's looking to be angry, but like a parent with a disobedient child, his heart breaks when he sees the pain you were never meant to bear. And he asks, how did you get here? Let's get out of here together. I wonder if David felt that way at first too. Our other reading, of course, comes from Psalm 51. And as we move to Psalm 51, we can't help but know the backstory of David. David had lied, raped, and murdered people. So much wrong had been done. There was no coming back from this. Better to move on like nothing happened rather than confess. And it takes the searing story of a prophet to confront such evil. And you can read more on this in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And it's the story of David that many over the millennia have seen as a backdrop to the confession we find in Psalm 51. And here we get a beautiful psalm of confession. But the psalm shows us that all of our confession begins not with God's anger, but with God's mercy and love. Psalm 51.1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. The same God who asks, how did you get here, also stands near to hear and respond with mercy and love. But it starts with the recognition that we see in verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. This is the psalmist's confession, and it's deeply personal. He says, my transgression, my sin. You may not have ever done this because it's a weird habit, but if you were to look at Psalm 51 and count up all the pronouns, personal pronouns, the words I and me, in Psalm 51, you would find that there are 32 personal pronouns in 19 verses. And there are zero references to any third party other than God. This psalm is intensely personal. My sin, my transgression. No one else is around. This is between me and God. This is a prayer from the psalmist to God about confessing their sin, their wrongdoings, their injuries, where they have messed up, where they have caused injury. Unlike Adam, there isn't a shift to blame anyone or anything else. And light light invites us into this introspection. But why do we move to confession? So if it's an act of love of God on our behalf, what is confession meant to do? I think we see that in verse 7. Sorry, confession leads to cleansing and to new life. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. When we confess our sins, we find that we are cleansed by God who wipes away our sin and begins the process of restoration. 
Confession is not merely an accounting, a tallying up of what we've done wrong. Confession is an invitation for renewal. It's a chance to start over again. It's a chance to start anew. We often think of confession as our death. As like if this is, if I'm exposed, it is the end of me. In a weird way, it kind of is. Lent is connected, sorry, confession is connected to death, but not in the way that we typically think. We, th- we will think it will be the death of us, and in an odd way, sin has to die. Sin has to be put to death, as Paul would say, but we are given new life. It's the sin that dies, not us. Confession is transformative, and confession is the starting point for new life. So is anyone looking for a new start? Maybe you're here this morning and thinking there's no way I could ever be loved because of what I've done. That's actually not the story that God tells us. Because we can both recognize our brokenness and acknowledge that God stands ready to renew and restore us. Nothing is ever too far gone. You are never out of the reach of God's love. So where do you start? We'll start with confession. Perhaps to God first and then to others. Saying, I was wrong, I sinned against you, is the only remedy for restoration. The psalm teaches us this proper confession. I know my transgressions and I know my sin. The three hardest words to say, I was wrong or I have sinned. Both the psalmist and Adam give us a picture of how confession does and doesn't work, right? Adam blames, the psalmist owns it. But what about our gospel reading from today? You might be scratching your head wondering why the temptation of Jesus is here in a sermon and lectionary passage on confession. I mean, what would Jesus have to confess at the end of the day? That seems like a really odd question. And I think the story of Jesus here is meant to stand in stark relief, contrast to the previous failures of the first Adam and King David. Now the last Adam and the son of David will do something greater. But I don't want you to miss this. Jesus still has a confession. There's something that he confesses, and it's his confession of dependence upon God and trusting God's goodness. As we look at the temptation narrative in Matthew 4, Jesus is retelling the story of Israel, and they're tempting in the, in the desert in the book of Numbers. But notice, each and every time Jesus receives a temptation, he gives a quotation from Deuteronomy. And Matthew is showing us that despite human temptation, Jesus overcomes by his radical trust in God. And Jesus is the faithful one who confesses his trust in his Father. And notice the last response of Jesus in Matthew 4.10. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.13 and says, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Is this not at the heart of why we need confession? We have failed to worship God and to serve him alone. From the garden to the throne of David to our living rooms, we have worshiped other things. We have fallen at the feet of other lovers and we have failed to trust God. Our misdeeds, our wrongdoings, are they not in some way a failure to trust the goodness and generosity of God? That reaching for the tree is reenacted in our own lives. Yes, God, you've provided all these things, but I need this one thing apart from you. We have failed to love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. Jesus, of course, does. And it's why in Matthew 4.17, he can declare, repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Our call to confession is really a call to repentance. I confess so that I can repent and return to God. Our confession doesn't put us at a distance from the kingdom. Our confession takes us into the kingdom. Because when we confess, the kingdom of God has come near to us. And so each week at Redeemer, we've done this through various seasons, we pray a prayer of confession. And it's one of the most beautiful prayers I think you will ever read. I have a small portion of it up on the screen. In this prayer, it says, We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. Notice what we confess each week. Our confession is for things done and things left undone. This confession is all-encompassing. And it can frame how we begin to think about areas where we've fallen short. The things done is probably an easier one. Where are the areas where I know that I have fallen short of God's highest and best for my life and for my community? If I'm honest with myself, my confession starts with fear and anger. I live most of my life worried about what could happen. I'm great at playing out scenarios. And often this involves me getting very short and very angry. And I have misspoken words all the time. I say things that I immediately regret. And in the moment it seems right because I want to dash off a a snarky response, a quick retort, or an angry word bomb to win an argument. But I need to confess and to repent. But maybe that's not you. Maybe for you it's just an overly critical spirit. You're always finding what's wrong in a situation. Pointing out the mistakes of others. Criticism is not a fruit of the spirit, I hate to tell us. So where can we be agents of hope and joy and bring life to the people around us rather than a critical word? Maybe this is the confession for you to a friend, to a spouse, to a colleague at work. To say I was wrong in the way that I always respond with a harsh word. I was wrong with the way I responded in that situation. Uh, But what about that second half of the prayer? Things which we ought to have done, gets a little bit harder. Sometimes it isn't about what we've done, but what we've failed to do. To love our neighbor as ourselves that's a pretty big one. But where are, the God, where are the areas that God can highlight? Maybe it was a time in prayer or scripture reading. Maybe it was something bigger, like an area God is calling you into, a ministry, an act of generosity, and your heart just keeps saying, I don't want to do that. Maybe it's a call to forgiveness like we heard last week. I don't want to forgive that person. It's too hard. So where does this find you this morning? Confession is a hard topic, but confession is a needed topic. And where is God moving today? Are there areas where confession is needed? I think one area that relates to all of us, no matter where we're at, is relationships. Friends, married people, people in some sort of relationship with another human. Let me say something a bit provocative. No relationship will survive without confession. No relationship will survive without confession. It will die. People hurt one another. As our prayer says, apart from God's grace, there is no health in us. We make sick choices, and those choices negatively affect one another. Sin isn't, again, just a tallying of a list. Sin is communal. Sin is a wrongdoing against someone else. It's not just a wrong answer on a test. Like, I picked C and I should have picked D. Sin is a deeply personal thing. Sin is a wounding thing. Sin lashes out, strikes, and hurts one another. And that's the reality we face when we live together 
in community as people who are sick. And unless we can become the type of people who are able to say, I was wrong, there is no hope for any of our relationships, married or otherwise. However, when by God's grace, we can look a friend or a partner in the eye and say the words, I was wrong, that can be a deeply healing thing. And might this be the very thing a relationship needs right now? To lay down the battle swords, to drop our fists, to fall on our face, and to say, I have sinned against you. Maybe this is a confession today that we need. And I'll admit right up front, I am not good at any of this. And I do not like it. But like many things that the Lord requires, I know that it's for my good and for the good of the community I'm a part of. As we conclude our sermon, perhaps one action point we can take this week is to schedule a confession with a priest. Our priests here at Redeemer are available during the season to hear confessions. There's something powerful that happens about speaking our confessions aloud, opening up our hearts and our lives to a trusted spiritual advisor and hearing God's words that you are forgiven. James 5, James recommends that we confess our sins to one another. Maybe this can be our new Lenten practice. Maybe you've never done a confession before, but confession can be our chance to start again, to start anew, and Lent invites us into this opportunity. As we begin this new season of Lent, we were reminded of the importance of confession. Our only hope is God's radical grace and mercy. We can be honest and we can confess because of Jesus. He resisted temptation and stands with open arms waiting to welcome us in all of our messiness and to ask the question, how did you get here? And let me help you get out. We come each week to this table where we confess that we are unworthy recipients of God's grace and we confess that it is his, his goodness and not our own that provides us a place at this table. Amen.